0: We saw how that God called Paul and his gang over to Macedonia by a vision where he was wanting to go in one direction and the Holy Spirit flatly forbade him to go. So he tried to go in another direction. He couldn't go. And finally, he received a vision. And the Holy Spirit said, no, excuse me, a man from Macedonia in this spirit said, come over to Macedonia and help us. And in a very real sense, that is a divine call for all of us. The world in which we live is in a spiritual vacuum. People that you work around are hungry and needy and hurting and wanting to know truth and meaning. And they're looking for answers. And it seems like written above every one of their lives is, come over and help us. And if you look at it honestly, perhaps you are the only one at work that has the answer. Perhaps you're the only one in your block or in your neighborhood that has the truth. Now, there might be others, but you don't know that. But you do know that you know it. And you do know that they need it. And in that spiritual vacuum is where the Lord would want to send us. And so there's a Macedonia call for each of us. You might have a job that is boring. You think, I hate this job. And I've been doing this for ten years and... Just going in, punching the clock, doing it all day long, punching out. I'm tired of it. I even hate the lunch that they serve over at this place. Get me out of here, Lord. And yet, you need to determine not only is it a bread-winning situation for you, but is it a calling of God for you? Is it a Macedonia call? Are you in a place where you can share with people that they wouldn't hear the gospel any other place? I worked in many places like that. And oftentimes I wonder, God, why did you allow me to get here? I won't blame it on you and say that you gave me this job, but you're in charge. Why would you let me come here? And I would complain and I would moan about the work conditions until finally the Lord broke through and said, I don't have you here just to earn a dollar. I have you here to share the gospel. And that transformed the place where I worked. It made it a true mission field, a challenge, where I would go in and start praying every day for individual people and then share with them and watch changes in their lives. And so that could be anything. It could be where you work. It could be your home. Alan Redpath, uh, since passed away, but a few years ago, he said that he knew a lady who had a sign over her kitchen sink that simply said, Divine service is rendered here three times daily. Boy, she had a good concept of what ministry was. Wherever you're at, you can serve the Lord And you can make an impact to those around you. Now, as you remember, after this call, Paul the Apostle went in to Macedonia. And he approached the city of Philippi. And in the city of Philippi, it was a strange kind of a city. It did not have a real Jewish presence. In fact, there were people who met out by the river, women who met by the river outside the city gate, simply because there wasn't a large Jewish population enough to sustain a synagogue. Because the law of the Jews read that you had to have ten Jewish males in order to build a synagogue. So there weren't even ten Jewish males in the city and Paul always began at the synagogue. And so after seeing such great things so far in his ministry, Paul in a sense has to shrink down to just ministering to a few women near a river. And only one of them is recorded came to know Jesus Christ. And then after that, They meet up with a demon-possessed girl who seems to have more clout in that city than they do. He casts a demon out of her. Uh, They get thrown in prison. Not only that, they get beaten with rods. And then they're thrown in jail. Now, if you were Paul the Apostle at that point, what kind of thoughts would bounce around in your brain? Would you wonder about the call that you received from the Lord a few weeks ago? I would. I would think, was this really from the Lord? Maybe Silas said, Paul, are you sure about that vision? Did you eat pizza the night before you got that vision? Are you sure this is really from God or did you make this up? I mean, where's the fruit in our ministry? We get called, just a few people, one responds. Demon-possessed people follow us around and then we're in jail. We're in prison in stocks, it says. In verse 24, having received such a charge, He put them into the inner prison, which really means solitary confinement. There was no air supply. There was no light. And they put their feet in stocks, which was a wooden device with apertures cut in it to separate the legs and make them tight. And there they are in that position in another hardship. I don't know what it is, but it seemed that trials dogged Paul wherever he went. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It seems that Paul the Apostle was one of them as well. In fact, Paul, in writing about his life and his ministry, in remarking about some of the highlights, though God was with him and God was good, he didn't say, well, you know, I had this crusade over in Philippi and thousands were saved, healed, and delivered. One of his epistles, he says, We were hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We were perplexed, yet not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We were struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now, people who often go through the kind of trials like this, or any kind of circumstances, be it because of persecution and preaching the gospel, or just the tough stuff that life dishes out, can tend oftentimes to become what psychologists would call depressed people. And if you ask the average depressed person, now I'm speaking here about the clinical depression, not depression that's caused because of chemical or physical conditions. But if you ask the average depressed person, well, what's, what's caused this depression? They would tell you a whole list of woes that had happened. Well, I've been, I lost my job, my husband left me, my car blew up, and then my house burnt down, then my dog bit me twice, one on each leg. Then my family said they didn't want anything to do with me, and you could go on and on. And you would look at it and say, yeah. You have every right to be depressed. And if you look at Paul's life, you might say, you have every right to be depressed. One blow after another. Now, what happens when a person goes through this is they react to the circumstance. They can't help the circumstance. Paul really couldn't help being beaten and thrown in prison. And uh, let's say a person lost their job because they had to lay people off. Well, you can't help that. You didn't cause that. You're a victim of the circumstance. Though you cannot help what happened, you can help in your response to what has happened. And I want you to turn over. Well, before we turn over there, i got to show you the contrast, and then we'll just develop this. The kind of things that Paul went through would cause the average person to sing the blues and say, Woe is me! But look at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Okay, now turn over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a moment. We're going to look at a few scriptures tonight concerning this. And as we turn there, I'm going to ask you a question that I'd like you to apply. And I can't ask you, have you been in prison lately? Because most of you haven't. And obviously you're not there now because you're here. But is there a place of confinement that you feel like you are in? That could be a lot of things. You could say, my job, for instance, I hate it. I'm confined in it. It's not what I want to do. It, It stifles my creativity. I'm a much better, bigger person than that job really offers me. It's not a challenge. I'm confined. I feel pent up in it. Same old stuff every day. And maybe you get off work depressed, feeling low because of it. Maybe it's your marriage. You think, you know what? The guy I'm married to is a creep. I feel like I'm in prison just being in this family. Whatever is your place of confinement, whatever it is that you feel stifles you, maybe it's a recent illness, a financial difficulty that you're having. Understand this. Depression is never the direct result of from any of those factors. Depression is the response that you have to those factors. Some of those things you can't help that happen to you, but your response can be biblical or sinful. And what often happens is that it's like a downward spiral. A bad thing happens to a person, the person responds wrongly to it, poorly. He says, oh man, God, don't you love me? I hate it, I'm confined. Then they go down further. And then another bad thing happens, and they go down further, and they react wrong. And it's just spiraling downward. And what has to happen is a reverse trend to spiral upward. And that's why, though there are cases of depression, that are due to chemical imbalances in the brain or physiological problems. Oftentimes, people are depressed because of sinful condition. You know what? That's not a popular stance to take among modern psychologists. Because you go into most counseling offices, you get a pat on the back, you're a victim of your environment that's happened to you, therefore, you just cope with your uh, problem and here's some medicine. Antidepressant. Take this drug and you just kind of sink off into oblivion. But a person, especially a believer, can reverse that trend. And though he's confined in stocks, he can sing in prison. Paul had no right to sing in prison. But he did it. Because he lived in the atmosphere of faith. And he wasn't a victim of his circumstances. He was a victor over them. He responded biblical to what, biblically to what happened to him not sinfully to what happened to him. And so I've had you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And there's a principle I want you to look at, and we'll refer back to it. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. There is a better translation of that from another version of the Bible that simply says, because God has given us a ministry or service to perform, Something to do for Him. We will not give up. We will not give up because God has something for us. I met a girl in the hospital who was diagnosed with depression a few months ago. You know, she had every right to be depressed. She had things happen to her that most of us will never face. And oftentimes a person in that condition, and certainly she in her condition, she just says, I'm just so down, I'm so depressed, I, I'm going to give up. I I can't go to the store I and shop. I, I can't go out and see people. I can't be around others. And she kept saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. What had happened is that all of these things happened to her and she responded to them wrongly. And she just spiraled downward until she became crushed And became a victim of her circumstances. She reacted emotionally and she became a victim of her emotions. Now the truth of the matter is, without being terse or cute, she could do those things. She had legs and arms and hands. She could walk to the car. She could put the key in the ignition and turn it. She could get out of the car, walk to a store, pull money out and buy something. But she felt like she couldn't. And so she responded and became a victim of her emotions rather than choosing what was right regardless of how she felt. Hey, listen, biblical behavior is most of the time not how you feel. I mean, there's times when I come to church, I don't feel like singing worship to the Lord. I've had a bad day. You want me to sing to God? Some of you feel that way. I can tell because sometimes I peek out and watch. But if I live my life based on how I feel, I'm going to be a basket case. And I'll shirk all my responsibilities. Case in point, when the alarm goes off at six in the morning. Now, if you have to get up early and you have to be somewhere to work, when that alarm goes off, you have to make a choice. Will I respond based on how I feel at the present moment? Because if you do, you'll shut the thing off and go back to sleep. You don't feel like getting up. Who does at 6 in the morning? Or 5.30 or whatever time? But if you say, you know what? i got to be to work. And so I have to make a choice. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. God gives us the power when we make choices and commitments toward Him by His strength to do what He wants us to do even if we don't feel like it or not. There's great victory that comes when we make that step of faith and say, God, I don't feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And here's a principle. Paul says, God has given us a ministry to perform, an area of service. Therefore, because He's done that, I am not going to give up. And so I shared that with this young lady. I said, you know what? It seems to me that God has not only spared your life, but God has given you some area of ministry that He wants you to perform And you're shirking out on your duty. And I think God would have you take a step and say, wait a minute, I need to discover my gifts, my talents, my sphere of influence, and then do what God would have me to do, regardless of how I feel. Not give up, because God has given me an area of service. She saw me two weeks later with a smile on her face. She said, I'm doing much better. I've gotten the victory over that area in my life since we spoke. This is something consistent with Paul the Apostle. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians now. We've turned to chapter 4. Over to chapter 11. And in verse 22, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Now here's his uh, resume. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the ocean. He wasn't surfing either. He was in the deep. Three times I was beaten with... Oh, I already read that. ...in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern... For all the churches. Then look over in chapter 12. In verse 8. He speaks about a thorn in the flesh. And the text would indicate, not only contextually, but linguistically, that it was a physical disease that plagued his body. And he said in verse 8, concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now imagine how you would feel being someone who's laid hands on people and watched them be healed and you yourself have an ailment. And you say, God, please. All I want to do is pour out my life to minister. Why are you letting this thing happen? Please. Nothing happened. And so he tried it twice. Oh God, please take it away. God didn't answer his prayer yes. He said no. And so he prayed the third time and it didn't work. So he went to bat three times and he struck out each time. What is his conclusion? How does he react? Does he say, therefore, I'm a victim of my circumstance and I'll walk around as a manic depressive because I always get beaten up, I always get thrown into the sea, and now I have a thorn in the flesh and I can't get rid of it. Listen to what he says. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God spoke to his heart. He said, you know what, Paul? Every time you're weak, I can show myself strong in your life because you depend upon me. You see, if you're healthy all the time and prosperous, you don't see the need of dependence. But now you do. And so my grace, my unmerited favor is all you need. You don't need healing. My grace is enough for you. Good question to ask yourself. What is enough in your life? Well, if I just had, if I just did... God said, my grace is enough. And so what is Paul's response to his circumstance and God's answer? Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He didn't feel like that. But he made that commitment anyway. Because God spoke to his heart. He had the assurance of God's promises and God's Word. And so he responded biblically rather than reacting sinfully. But if anybody had the right to be depressed, it was Paul the Apostle. But he wasn't. He rejoiced. Great, great example. The book of Philippians. Written from a Roman prison under the Praetorian Guard in Rome. And what is the theme of the book? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You either have to be a banana head to say that or in tune with the Lord to say that. Because he had no right in his condition to talk like that. And yet he said, hey, my condition is furthering the Gospel. And I just want to further the gospel. And hey, the gospel is being preached right here in prison. You know, before I never saw how important it was to share the gospel within the prisons. But now I'm in one. And now even the guards, he said, the Praetorian Roman guards are coming to know Christ. And so the gospel is being furthered. That was his response biblical, biblically. Now turn back to our text in the book of Acts. Keeping that in mind as being part of Paul's lifestyle, we read in verse 25, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. God's bird, or it's been said, God's birds can sing even when they're caged in a darkened cage. You know, anybody can sing when they're healthy, wealthy, and wise. Anybody can say, hallelujah, I just got a new this. Or, I, this just happened to me. Anybody can do Takes no faith through that. And yet that's what's being preached by many false prophets around the country today. Oh, have faith for healing and for uh, finances and so forth. And then when you get them, ooh, hallelujah, anybody can do that, but in the face of destruction. In the face of deprivation, being in prison to say, thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. That takes a real work of God. And at midnight they were singing, how do you stop guys like this? How do you stop them? They're, They're unstoppable. Okay, you don't let them sing and pray down by the riverside? They'll do it in prison. They can't sing and pray at midday? They'll do it at midnight. And it blew their minds. The prisoners were listening attentively. And one man, as we see, comes to know Jesus Christ. Nothing could touch them. They had victory wherever they were. Again, the letter of Philippians says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Which is something very foreign to the world. The world, it seems, is marked by pain and sorrow. You can see that every time you read a newspaper, turn on the television, speak to the average person. Sorrow, pain, a search for meaning, the absence of joy, Vibrance, the absence of life marks most people that I find. And yet joy is a byproduct of the Christian life. A person in touch with the Lord can soar even over the the worst circumstances. I think of Mark Twain. Boy, he made a lot of people laugh. Great wit. Yet did you know that his personal life was marked with great sorrow? He was a miserable person and he admitted it. Oh, he had some happiness from time to time, but he had no joy. And here Paul and Silas can sing at midnight. I don't know how you picture Jesus, but I picture him as having, a, first of all, a good sense of humor. You know, we often picture Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we see him as one who probably has a furrowed brow, kind of serious, And yes, he was, as he took upon himself the sins of the world. It was no laughing matter. But I'm one who believes that hanging out with Jesus was a great time. Look at the nicknames that he gave his disciples. As he met Simon, he said, you know, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Rocky. That's what Peter means. A tiny little pebble. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. That's what they were known by the disciples. Jesus called them something else. He says, I'm going to call you not sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder. Because in Samaria, they wanted to post-hosty the Samaritans because they didn't receive Jesus. They said, should we call fire down from heaven to consume them? And so he thought, you know, I have a good name for you guys. Sons of thunder. Because they wanted to call thunder down and lightning like Elijah did. And I'm sure it was a great time just being around Jesus. I don't think it was down in the dumps all the time. I think that they had fullness of joy because even Jesus as He approached the cross and the shadow of the cross was over Him, He said, My joy I am giving to you. My peace and My joy. These things I have spoken unto you that you might have My joy in you and that your, that joy might remain even under the shadow of the cross. Jesus sang a hymn before He was taken in the garden by the Romans. And I think that joy is probably the second most dramatic representation of the life of Christ within the Christian. First of all, it's love. But on the wings of love flies joy. The ability to love people and the ability to, in circumstances, say... Hey, thank you, Lord. Praise you anyway. That doesn't mean that you're happy because of the circumstances. Hey, life stinks, let's face it. But even though life stinks, even though this is a real bummer and a real drag, this circumstance, you know what? God did not vacate His throne. He's still here. There are thieves to our joy, aren't there? Circumstances are a great thief of our joy. In fact, it seems to be the the anchor of depression. Isn't it true that for most of us, we're happy-go-lucky when things are going our way? but When things aren't going our way, we're not so happy-go-lucky. That's typical human. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. Well, great. Big deal. What about when things aren't going your way? Then do you have a beautiful feeling? No, you have a miserable feeling. Right? That's why if you depend on circumstances for your joy, you're miserable to hang around with. Because there's so many of life's things that are out of your control. They just happen. And some of them can be rotten. Another thief of joy is people. Just by what they say and what they do, right? You can have such joy and someone will come up to you and say something so off the wall that just quenches you. Or you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. And you're singing a worship song and all of a sudden somebody cuts you off and you want to murder him slowly. Things can rob you of joy. Worldly things that promise pleasure if you buy them. You buy them and they lie to you. They don't give you fulfillment anymore. Even though the advertiser said, buy this and your life will be changed. Have guest jeans and your life will be different. People will notice you. You buy guest jeans and you think, I've been ripped off. Fifty bucks a pair. I'm not happy. And perhaps the biggest thief for joy is worry. Worry about the things that might happen. That never do. Wondering about what's around the corner next. Notice in verse 25 at the end, it says as they were praying and singing to God, the prisoners were listening to them. That's a rare word in the New Testament. It means to listen with anticipation, actively. They probably had their mouths dropped when they were listening because they weren't used to hearing singing in prison. They were used to hearing cursing in prison. Why am I here? Moans in the middle of the night. And can you imagine... At midnight, no doubt they were woken up out of a very uh, poor sleep that most people would get in prison by hallelujah. And they're thinking, what on earth is that? And why are people singing in prison? I did a funeral today for a Christian lady. Been a Christian most all her life. Any funeral is sorrowful, but a Christian funeral there's a huge tinge of joy that runs through that funeral. It was a celebration. Because she didn't die, that's a poor, poor description for a Christian who goes to be with the Lord. She moved. That's accurate. That's what Paul said. If we get rid of this temporary tent, we move to a house not made with human hands eternal in the heaven. So she moved. And it comes a time when you don't want to hang around this body any longer. It gets old. It gets kind of decrepit, kind of useless. And you think, well, I'd like to move. Need a new house. So God moved her. And there was a celebration that we had. A graduation ceremony. But you know what? As we're sharing these truths, and I'm sharing with the congregation at the funeral today, and every funeral, I can tell from my vantage point, because I see everybody's face, who understands that and who doesn't. As I'm sharing it, you can see certain people going, yeah. And other people going, why are they happy? Someone's dead. (laughs) That must have been the response to these guys listening to Paul and Silas sing praises at midnight. They listened attentively. The only time this word in the New Testament is used like this. Because it just was so out of whack with these people. It goes to show you, you, you never know who's listening. Right, uh, You who go to the store and buy groceries and you talk and people may know you and you don't know that they know you and they overhear something you say or do. Um, people at work are watching you. You probably don't know all the people that watch you like hawks. Look at your life. Because you said you're a Christian. Okay, let's see what one's like. A friend of mine in California where I used to live in Huntington Beach a few months ago, gave me a call. And he said, Skip, remember when we used to live on 8th Street and Pecan down by the beach? Yep, I do. You used to play your guitar out of the porch? Every- yeah, I remember that. So, well, I saw our old neighbor lady, and you probably never knew this, but she said, I used to hear Skip play his guitar and sing and pray on the porch almost every night because my window was open. I didn't know where her room was or window was open. And she said, it was at that time that I was going through tremendous difficulties in my marriage with my husband. I was so down. But then I'd hear worship songs at night. And it was just the reminder of God's hope that kept me going. I had no idea that somebody was listening to that. It was kind of a private session with the Lord, I thought. Until a couple months ago, I found that out. But you never know who's listening to you. Well, it goes on and it says that suddenly they were There was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from his sleep and seeing that the prison doors were open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew a sword and was about to kill himself. He was going to commit suicide because if as a guard of the prison, prisoners escape under your guardianship, they're going to kill you anyway. And so he figured, why give them the joy of killing me? I'll just do away with myself right now. And so Paul called out with a loud voice saying, don't or do yourself no harm. We're all here. And then he called for a light. And he ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, go to church. And be baptized. And do good works and prove yourself for a while. No. What were the conditions? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which does not mean intellectually agree that God exists. It means commit yourself to. Trust and rely on. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. Now that's a real proof of conversion. Because first of all, he said to them, Sirs. Now before they were prisoners. Now he says he's on his knees in front of the prisoners. And in verse 30 he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The word sirs is the same Greek word as back in verse 16. When it uses the word master, same word. So instead of being prisoners, now they're masters. Master, sirs, what must we do to be saved? Well, believe in Jesus. You'll be saved. He believes in Jesus. He's saved. Then he washes their stripes as evidence that, hey, his life has been changed. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Notice, though, the baptism came after the belief. Now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them and he rejoiced. Again, the evidence, joy. Believing in God with all of his household. This is one of the most important scriptures in the Bible on salvation. There's a whole system of belief that theologians, I don't know why it is, but theologians try to make things difficult. They come up with words that people usually don't use, but the doctrine of salvation in theologianese is called soteriology. And if you get a book on systematic theology or the 10-volume set by Schaefer on systematic theology, there's almost a whole volume developed to, devoted to soteriology or the doctrine, the teaching of salvation. The interesting thing about it and what basically that means is that these guys get together and find all of the scriptures in the Bible related to salvation and its definition and combine them all and formulate a biblical theology based on it. What's really wild, though, is almost every place in the Bible where salvation is spoken of, it's done in such short, simple terms. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Just short, terse little truths. And yet within this sentence, within this section, is vital keys to understanding the mechanics of how salvation works. For salvation to happen, there has to be a few things. First of all, there has to be a need. A person has to recognize that he needs something. And so it was with the Philippian jailer. He saw that he had a need. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was in despair. He was desperate. And so, for a person to be saved, they have to have an expressed or as again, psychologists like to call it, a felt need. No one will ever ask for forgiveness of sins unless he says, I'm a sinner. I need help. I need something. And so Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. I want to read to you a couple quotes and I'll just let you pick out which ones you think are accurate or You agree with or don't agree with. Now, keep in mind, here's a jailer on his knees in humility crying out because he sees his need. And we're going to see that there's a provision made for his need and he responds to the provision. But now listen to these quotes. First is by Shirley MacLaine. So your antennas are already up. The most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, plural, your children, your pain, your happinesses, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have working is, the only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life, no doubt. Now here's one by a Christian leader. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ or under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and counterproductive to evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Can you imagine a Christian leader saying that? Saying that you should not tell people that they're sinners because it ruins everything? How do people recognize the need of a Savior without knowing they're a sinner? The word Savior means someone who saves from sin. God does not forgive hangups. He doesn't. He forgives sin. That's what He's in the business of doing. He's in the business of wiping clean the slate of sin. And unless a person recognizes it's sin, there's no forgiveness. In his book, Absolute Surrender, Andrew Murray says, here's another quote, self is our greatest curse. But praise God, Christ came to redeem us from self. And there you have the reason why so many people pray for the power of the Holy Ghost and they get something, but oh, so little. Because they prayed for power, for work, power, for blessing, but they haven't prayed for power, for full deliverance from self. I would nod in agreement with that one. The next one is by A.W. Tozer, one of my favorites. Speaking about the mature Christian, his interests have shifted from self to Christ. What he is or is not is of no longer concern to him. Christ is now where the man's ego was formerly. Remember four spiritual laws? Take yourself off the throne. Put Jesus up there. The man is now Christ-centered instead of self-centered. He forgets himself. And his delighted preoccupation is now with Christ. You see, there's such a difference in the value system between this world and the Gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, would not hack it very long on Wall Street. Blessed are they who mourn, would not go well in the top offices of most executive offices. We like self-reliance, self-confidence. Now, if you're going to go get a job somewhere and you walk in and say, well, I don't think I can do this job. I'm not very good. Would they hire you? No. But poor in spirit does not mean that you flail yourself or beat yourself up. It simply means that you recognize who you are in God's presence and that you have a need Isaiah, when he saw God high and lifted up, what did he say? This is great, man! No, he didn't. He said, Woe is me! I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What did Peter see? What did Peter say when he saw Jesus' miracles on the boat? Did he say, nice trick? Can I do that? Oh Lord, I want that power, miraculous power too. No, he said, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He recognized who he was in his condition and his need because he saw himself in the presence of a holy, righteous God. And therein is the first step of repentance and thus salvation. I need God. God saved me. What must I do to be saved? Question mark. Recognizing that you have a need. Then the next element is a Savior. We'll close probably off with this and finish the next week, but I'll, I'll close with this. We need a Savior, one to whom we can make an appeal once we've recognized, I have a need. So what? What do you do with it? You don't walk around saying, I have a need to be saved. Someday I'll be saved. Well, there are people that do that. They're always searching, but never finding, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And so the second element, of salvation, is we need a Savior. And so Paul says, okay, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The word Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yehoshua, which means a Savior. One who is fitted to save you from your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Unless there's an advocate, unless there's an intercessor, unless there's someone who can take away our sins, we will die. Because the Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin are death. We'll die physically and then we'll die spiritually unless we have a Savior. And then the third element, and we'll leave that for next week, is a response. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You need to respond to that. You see you have a need? Right, I have a need. Boy, I I need to be saved. Great. Here's the Savior. Now, believe, commit, trust, rely on that He can save you from your sin. And we'll discuss that next week. But know this as we close. Yes, Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That means you recognize that you're poverty-stricken spiritually. You can't cut it on your own without a Savior. Secondly, you mourn over your sin. Blessed are those who mourn. You cry out to God like the Philippian jailer. But Jesus said those who do that will be comforted. They'll be rewarded for it. I like that old hymn of the church that says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Well, I'll wait till I'm a little bit better. God can't receive me the way I am. I mean, I'm so filthy. I'm such a rotten person. If these people around me only knew what I was really like doesn't matter what you're really like. And God already does know what you're really like. And He's willing to receive you if you'll commit your life to Him. Because He's got the biggest eraser. And He will wipe the slate clean. And then He'll throw your sins into His sea of forgetfulness, so to speak. He says, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And so He'll throw them in the sea of forgetfulness with a little sign that says no fishing allowed. That's what Corey ten Boom used to say completely clean. If you tarry, tell you're better, you will never come at all. You need a response to the Lord. If you know that you need a Savior, most of you have come to the Savior. Most of you I can tell because I know your faces. and Some of you I know very well. But some of you may have come for a while, but you have not responded by believing. You haven't committed your life to Him. You've waited. You've put it off. And you need to come and give your life to Jesus Christ tonight. Let's pray. Lord, you said that you're not willing that any should perish. You don't want that. But all to come to eternal life. You said to your prophet, turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? And so, Lord, knowing Your heart, knowing Your desire, we pray right now for the many who perhaps have not received Jesus Christ as their Savior. They haven't turned to You, Lord. I pray, Lord, that there would be an admission of need and a crying out to the Savior and the forgiveness of sin.